Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. My name is Matt Salis, and my guest today is, I'm really excited about this one because this is someone that I've spoken about a lot, and I've written about her even more than I've spoken about her. I've written about her at SoberAndUnashamed.com, my blog, and um, I've done my best to present her side of, of the story um, and, you know, tried to do that even-handedly and openly and honestly, but nothing beats hearing it, you know, straight from her mouth. So I'm really excited to be here today and let you hear firsthand from Sherry, my wife. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. Seem just a little bit reluctant to be doing this. Is that is that fair? That's very fair. Talk, talk about that for a second. What what makes you reluctant to be to be uh, doing this? Because I don't like talking a lot of the times. I don't like a lot of in depth conversation. I know you like to get to the nitty gritty, and I'm not always that kind of person that likes to talk out my feelings and share openly and honestly and is it fair to say that in a lot of ways we have the opposite of the stereotypical roles in a heterosexual marriage uh yes that's very typical that's a very good way to put it so i'm the one that wants to talk it out and you're okay with just just moving on yeah yeah gotcha well in that case then i'm especially thankful for you to uh to be doing this, getting a little bit outside the old comfort zone. One of the things that you and I have discussed with my writing and then also with the podcast is that um, we seem to that sometimes get more traction or get more feedback or questions or emails or comments when I write about our relationship. And I think one of the reasons for that is... Um, alcoholism very commonly destroys marriages and it destroys marriages um, during active alcoholism and then what was surprising to me that we've learned over the last couple of years is how many relationships it destroys once the recovery begins Um, because so much changes and you know sometimes the couple is gets pretty used to living with the disease and gets pretty used to living with the awfulness of alcoholism and then when it when the alcohol goes away everything changes and change you know i think people think assume that when the alcohol goes away the change is for the better but that's not always the case sometimes the change is just hard and so the fact that we've remained married and that we're trying to work through this recovery together is somewhat unique and unique enough that um, that it seems to pique people's interest and so that's why I was so excited to have you on and kind of twisted your arm to do this and get outside your comfort zone so thank you you're welcome well would you talk for a minute about um, talk about the you know we don't need to I think eventually if, if you'll come back on and talk more we'll talk about the whole story from the beginning back when you and I met in college and we both were heavy drinkers and you know living a partying lifestyle but I don't want to go back that far today I think maybe a decent place to start would be with when when we were married and um, my drinking was still consistent and heavy and yours had tapered off and you first started to feel like uh, there was something wrong, that this wasn't okay, that I I was drinking too much and um, it was time for me to address that. Can you, when was that point when you were like, all right, something's wrong? So it was before you and I were married. Um, I know we had, you had gotten a job 
right outside of graduation from college and we had moved to Minnesota and we lived in a small town outside of St. Paul, which is now a huge suburb outside of St. Paul. And I remember your nightly cocktails and I just was always a little curious because I didn't grow up with a father in the house and my father was um, uh, an alcoholic and so I had grown up with the connotation that alcohol was was pretty bad and dangerous and especially every night but you you know you would come home and you would have your Bacardi black rum mixed with something and I would just kind of question and say like every night you're like my my dad did this and it's fine it's fine and it just that always kind of was a little bit of a signal and then I think um I kind of got used to that and believed that and we lived in Chicago and you traveled a lot and then you also had to host a lot of dinners and so there was a little bit more drinking um you know trying to entertain your clients but the second time we moved back to St. Paul um, and we were building and we were working on restoring the house, I got to notice like you didn't have hardly any like mix even in your vodkas and your drinking. I mean, like they were very, very strong. And the amount of times that you fell asleep on the couch and in the middle of, you know, watching a movie and I just really kind of noticed then. And then once we started to have kids and I knew that I kind of felt like maybe I didn't always have a safety net if something would have happened. And so once we started having kids, it became more of a problem for me. But all along, it was, it's under control. I'm fine. People drink like this all the time. And these were, you know, and this was already at this point, five, six years of us being together that I had heard those things and oh you just didn't grow up with alcohol you didn't grow up with a man in the house you don't know how men are and so I just kind of took that along but I always felt like there was something more to it pretty early on but I just kind of ignored it or got mad at you about it and wasn't good at expressing my true feelings without having anger it's really interesting that, um, you know, Jason and I on this podcast have talked a lot and I've written about the fact that we get so much of our patterns, um, whether we want to or not, like it's outside of our control. We get so many of our patterns from what, what we saw growing up from our, our childhood. And it's interesting that the first point that you started to feel concern was right after college because when we were in college together partying was the norm heavy drinking weekends and you know I didn't particularly like weed but there was a lot of weed going around too and other drugs occasionally um, so that was that was not rare to see so to go from that to the fact that as soon as we got kind of an adult life right we moved in together and um with all intentions of eventually getting married and um, settled into nine to five jobs, that 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 you immediately started to have concerns. And like you said, you know, I grew up. My dad had a couple of cocktails after work every single night. So what was normal to me was abnormal to you, even though it was coming off of a heavy partying period. I think that's that just speaks to how powerful the lessons of our childhood are well and I think too I found it kind of interesting that even though you worked in an office situation and there were plenty of people that we went out and did happy hours with because your job just had more opportunity with people your own age or just a few years older than you like one of the first like really good friends you got was a pretty heavy drinker um like you guys just found each other in the office and so even some of the people that would hang out from your office that didn't drink very much, you didn't really want to have anything to do with them, even though I thought they would be a fine, fun people to hang out with a fine couple. You were definitely more geared towards going to the guy who was the heavy drinker as well. I think and I love him to death. I, it, you know, I just thought, I always thought it was just kind of strange how you two well, hit it off so well in a lot of other ways and that you both loved 
drinking. I think that's fair. And I, I was definitely at the time of the mindset, and this was just both from seeing my dad drink as I was growing up, my grandfather, my, you know, most of my family. My mom didn't drink when I was growing up. Um, but then really the, the fraternity life in college where all the people that I had strong relationships with, all of them, not just drank, but binge drank and drank to excess, that when we were off on our own as adults, um, I mean, it's embarrassing to admit, but I looked at people who didn't drink like they were weak and they were sad and that they were missing out and that they were kind of losers. I, I, I didn't, I couldn't justify in my mind at the time that not drinking might be because there's been an issue, like you've had alcoholism in your life, um, or that you just don't enjoy it. I just thought you were a loser if you didn't drink. They so, were fun and yeah. Well, I, I thought. I mean, you mentioned that um, that the relationships I developed with heavy drinkers, we also had other things in common. I just assumed I wouldn't have anything in common with someone who didn't drink. If they don't drink, they must not like to watch sports, and they must not like to, you know hang out on the weekends or whatever I thought was fun at the time. Those people, I don't know, I, I, I guess I didn't give much thought to what they did do for entertainment, but I had no interest in being around people who didn't drink. Mm -hmm. So you're right. You're right about that. Um, the, the part that really got you emotional as you talked about the first part of that story is when, when we started to have kids, um, it, it sounds like, you know, as you went from being this independent person, even when we were, you're very <coughs> strong and independent person, you always have been. So even when we were first together and then first married, I think you still probably felt that sense of independence. If something didn't go the way you wanted, you could take care of yourself. But what I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, but once we had kids, um, you looked at it as more of a partnership and we were in this together. And so if I was passed out on the couch at 10 o'clock on Friday night, you went from being in, in it together to you were in it alone mm -hmm. when it comes to taking care of the kids. Yep. Did that scare you? Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Cause you know, as a parent, you, you don't know what's going to happen sometimes. And you, you know, I'm a little bit of a pessimist. So you know, I hear stories on the news about, you know, children getting sick in the middle of the night or an accident happening or something. And I'm thinking, am I going to be able to wake him up? Is he going to be sober enough to take care of the other kids at home? Or is he going to be able to take care of, you know, what's going on and the situation? Like, we had a scare with our son. So we had a daughter and then a son. And he had to go to the emergency room with croup in the middle of the night. And I'm thinking, you know... Like, I don't know how coherent and put together Matt's brain is working at this time. And um, I wouldn't even say you'd be passed out by 10 o'clock on Friday nights. You'd be passed out a lot earlier because of having our bakery business. You were up very early in the morning and we opened very early. So there were often times where you were, you know, passed out. You know, at 8.30, 8 o'clock, before even some of the kids were, like, down for bed. And um, so I kind of had my own little nightlife routine of after you and ki the kids went to bed. And so I did, like, you know, chores and stuff. But I, you know, I would always think, like, gosh, what if an emergency were to happen? Or what if I were to fall down the stairs and break my leg? And is he going to be, you know, able to drive me to the emergency room or take care of the kids? And... So I kind of did feel a little bit more like I had to be on top of it for everything. So I started to feel a little guarded and I kind of felt like I was, you know, the fun crusher and I just couldn't relax because I felt like I had to be on it a lot of the times. So, so as my drinking progressed and... Um, you felt more and more alone and isolated in, in the parental responsibilities. Um, something else happened. Y your, your drinking declined significantly. And I think the first kind of major drop-off... Well, I, I don't know if I'd say that. When we, 
got out of college and and had all of a sudden you, you know you're thrust from this party life to this adult life um where you've got to get up and go to work in the morning and um i think pretty quickly um you you saw that the patterns of my drinking were not comfortable for you and and you started drinking a little less then um still on the weekends or like you mentioned the happy hours or whatnot um but as we got more and more into being adults and we had kids and my drinking progressed your drinking declined do you think do you think that was more a factor of you just maturing i mean a lot of people as they get older they drink less i'm certainly not one of them do you think it, that was the factor or did you start to get really disgusted by what you saw alcohol doing well, I, th- I think, honestly, it was the maturing factor. I- I've You really don't ever experience hangovers. You never did. I think maybe you had, like, some really uncomfortable days, not emotionally, but physically uncomfortable days. But of all the times I have seen you drink and we drank together, like, I did not handle alcohol very well. Like, my system just didn't do well with it. Maybe it's normal. Like, you know, because I would get hangovers. So I couldn't afford, especially with kids and jobs, like I couldn't afford to go in to work and be hungover. Um, if, you know, and just having my brain function. So I think it was that. And then on top of just seeing how much you drank and knowing that somebody had to be responsible, somebody had to be on the watch, somebody had to make good decisions. And I feel like sometimes I would, before kids, or even a few times when we had kids and we'd be out and I would drink heavily. Sometimes it would just be in frustration of seeing how much you were drinking. And I was like, I just can't even like emotionally deal with this a little bit. So I just would like drink a little more heavily. Like when we went away for conventions and stuff to kind of blow off steam and kind of feel a little irresponsible. Cause we didn't have the responsibility of the kids um, waiting back at the house for us. Cause we were in a hotel room, you know, several States away. And the kids were well taken care of. But I think it did become sort of a, more of a maturity issue. Like, it's just time to grow up. You don't need to drink like this and you don't need to drink every day. And it's not good for you. I just, in my mind, I always just knew that alcohol was just not a good thing for you. It just can't be good in that quantity and it can't be good on a daily basis. And sometimes you would bring it up and you would talk to me about it. And, um... I'm curious about your initial recollections of that. My my initial recollections were specifically what you mentioned that you would talk about. Like before I remember you talking about me drinking too much, I remember you talking about me drinking too often and that you thought it was unhealthy and not normal for me to drink every night. Now, you know, in fairness and honesty, most weeknights when I had to get up and go to work in the morning... Um, I didn't just go nuts and drink 20 beers or drink a, you know, there are people certainly that drink a fifth of vodka every night. I didn't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't miss a night either. I drank every night and, and my first recollection, you know, honestly, um, just like I didn't give any time to getting to know people that didn't drink when we were young adults, I didn't give a second thought when you would say, um, you know, drinking, you drink every night. I, I don't think that's healthy. I would say, ah, you just didn't grow up with it. What do you know? My dad was very successful. He drinks every night. You're nuts. And it wasn't even like there was conflict or um, it wasn't like I was worried about the thoughts that you were having or the things you had said to me. I just blew you off as, as blowy offy as a person can be. Is that what you remember about the first times you would try to talk to me about it? Yeah. And also I think like there was a lot of held back. I mean, after a while it became like held back anger that I would just then release and lash out. But I definitely feel like I felt like, Oh, Sherry, you don't know anything. You're so dumb. That's what I felt like you were in your brain doing. And then I felt like it was an actual, you were actually like, toying and deceiving and playing with me just to make me feel bad and to make me feel stupid and 
to demean me that I was wrong, that there's no way that that's happening. So I kind of felt like, um, you know, felt really, really uneducated and about alcohol and whatever. I missed out not growing up with a father in the house, but there was a very good reason my father wasn't in the house. And I mean, I had a stepdad for a while, but he didn't drink that often at all. I think Midori was about the hardest liquor they kept in the house for their Midori sours every occasionally. But yeah, I definitely felt like that you blew me off and that it was a manipulative, deceptive way for you to kind of control me by making me feel bad. Um, you know, there was definitely a lot of arrogance in my opinions about alcohol and just the way I was living my life. Um, that I, I did not think that you knew what you were talking about. That's fair. Um, eventually, you know, not, not necessarily about the daily cocktail. Like if I came home and had two drinks and then that was it, that, um, I didn't get mean about that. At least I didn't feel like I got mean about that. What I got mean about is if I had way too much to drink on a, on a weekend. I mean, I guess it occasionally happened on a weeknight. That's fair, but mostly on a weekend. And then the next day I would feel kind of caught. Like there were parts of the day, night I couldn't remember. And you, in fairness, have a very, 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 like a painfully good memory. Like a memory that haunts you because you can't forget things. And has been a huge challenge for you to face in recovery. But, um, so when there were blackout periods and things I couldn't defend myself on or couldn't even remember, um, then I definitely would turn mean. I would take that arrogance of, I know what I'm doing, men just drink like this, you don't know what you're talking about, and then feel a little backed into the corner because I couldn't remember everything, and I would say awful things to you and, and um, be vicious. Um, so I would say it was, you know, partially defense mechanism and partially arrogance. I mean, I really, when I think back to how I thought I had everything figured out and I'm not just talking about drinking. I just, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, this is what I'm going to do career path wise. And we're going to have these kids and everything's going to be fine. And, um, I just thought life was easy. I had no concept of the challenges that we were going to face. Um, so I definitely, I definitely think that's fair. Um, what about, so talk a little bit about, um, what you would do to seek outside help. And before, uh, before we listen to what you have to say about that, I think it's really important that we mention the fact that, um, you know, alcoholism is a really private disease of lies. And even before I recognized that I was an alcoholic or that I drank too much or however you want to phrase that, I definitely wanted to keep our lives very private, which is what makes this discussion we're having right now so ironic. Um, I didn't want you to talk to your friends. I didn't want you to talk to your family. I didn't want you to talk to my family about the things that would be included in that list would be our relationship, my drinking. Um, I guess it's not a very long list, but yeah. that's pretty much everything there you is. You were an open book about pretty much everything else except for drinking and how it affected our relationship and your drinking. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you here you are. You didn't have the outlook of having any problems because you didn't want it to, I think, come back to people saying, well, what is the drinking doing to the relationship? So you're trapped in this relationship that, and when I say trapped, I don't think we have to dwell on this, but I think it's important to acknowledge that you and I took our marriage very seriously. We always took our marriage very seriously, that, we would stay that together. our vows were, like when they say, till death do us part, even if it meant we killed each other, <laughs> we were going to stay together till death do us part. And mm -hmm. Where are the roses there? <laughs> my, mine was... 
kind of this idyllic. It went along with me having all of life figured out. There's no way I'm getting a divorce. That would have been embarrassing to me, yeah. honestly. Yeah. You and yours. Failed. You would have failed at your marriage. Yeah. Your divorce. No matter what what caused people to get divorced, you were very judgmental about that. Very divorce. judgmental. And and your yours, you know, don't mean to put words in your mouth, was at least partially because you had experienced a lot of divorce on your side and seen the pain and you didn't want any part of that. Is that fair? Right, right. So here we are. You're trapped in this relationship that's spiraling downward. um, And I am adamant that you are not to talk about our relationship or my drinking with all the people close to you. Um, How did that make you feel? Um... Pretty alone. I mean, I don't know that how else to describe it. I mean, it sounds like you kind of made it a very easy answer. Yeah, you felt very alone. You felt very, you know, you knew you weren't unique because there was like Al-Anon and all of that. But you felt a little like you were living a lie. Feel like so. I feel like in the beginning, like when we first had. Catherine and we moved to a town in Indiana. All one of our neighbors and Matt um, would like to have cocktail hour. And when you weren't traveling and her husband had to work late a lot of the times, like that was for the highlight to her day. Was for her and her daughter to come over and her daughter was a few years older than Catherine and hang out with us and we would have cocktail hour, which then often turned into dinner time and I would you know, especially like on Friday nights. Um, so I kind of felt like I couldn't like go to her um, and say, hey, you know, I want you to stop coming over every Friday night and taking advantage of our house being an open liquor store to you and your entertainment because my husband likes to drink too much when you guys are together. Because I felt like, you know, that I was just hurting and judging too many people. So, and she was never a person that I could turn to and say anything, even though we were friends and I could talk to her about a lot of things, but I couldn't say that was my concern because I'm sure, I don't know now, but I'm sure she looked at you, Matt, like, he doesn't have a drinking problem. It's Friday night. Let's have some drinks. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say that she was on the exact same path I was on. Yeah. She, she was as excited to see me as I was excited to see her walk over. For no other reason than your drinking had slowed so much, and here comes my drinking buddy. This right. Is well, be and awesome. breastfeeding, you know, I mean, let's remember, like, we should say we breast, I breastfed all four of our kids. So between breastfeeding and pregnancy, and then just getting older and not handling alcohol, and then like having that weighted concern of somebody has to be sober, somebody has to be aware, you know. So that was a time that was really hard because I felt like you didn't travel quite as much with that job, and I had my family, and then I had this baby. You know, who was six months old. And so I couldn't turn to her. And so I did a few times turn to my mom. And I got a lot of, you know, like in the beginning, it was just one child or two children. It was, you know, like you can get out of this situation. And I, and I kept like, I don't want to leave him. I just want him to be better. I want him to drink normally. And, uh, so I would turn to her. So then that also built up a, a terrible relationship between you and my mom. And then I, you know, would talk to my sister sometimes. And her husband had a lot of issues, um, mental health issues and drinking issues. So there was a little bit of commiserating. And but she, she kind of just took a different avenue. Didn't really want to talk about it as much other than just leave him. Just leave him. That was advice that you got from both of them. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... But then, like, when we moved out here to Denver and I started meeting families, I just didn't... You know, I didn't run into a lot of the same situations. I Because like nobody neighbor. was talking about drinking or alcohol. And so I just felt like that was just sort of something I had to not talk about it. And then I met one friend whose sister has an alcohol problem and we talked about it and her so she kind of you know would say I've just kind of written her off 
you know, she would be empathetic and she's like, you can do so much for so many, so so long. You can do so much for a person for so long. And then after a certain point, you have to just say, I, I have to cut them out of my life. But it's different when it's your husband and you can't cut your husband out of your life because he's the father of your children. He's your business partner in, in your, you know, livelihood and you've made this commitment. So you have kids, responsibilities. And you don't want to end. So that was like one friend that I shared with. And um, this was at the point where you had already started to recognize your drinking and wanted to quit um, for some time and had played with quitting. But yeah, it just I just felt like I really must be crazy or everybody drinks like this but and, and I sure was doing my best to make you feel crazy because and... it was it was my way to defend myself even if even as I started to realize I was in trouble um, by putting the blame for fights and arguments on you or telling you everyone drinks like this what's the matter with you um, that was definitely a defense mechanism even as my ego started to crumble and as my self-assuredness like I started to feel bad emotionally and started to have um, serious depression alcohol-induced depression start to creep in I was still defending what I was doing and trying to make you feel like you were crazy for questioning it yeah well that and then I was just getting really angry too because this isn't how I mean, I know it's not how you envisioned your life, but it certainly isn't how I envisioned it. And so I was angry and hostile and mad and just so disappointed that when I did talk to you about it, I talked to you obviously at the wrong times too, because there would be times I would try to talk to you about it while you were drinking or, you know, when you were drunk or like the next morning when you felt really bad. So my approach definitely could have been better with timing and the way I said things and but, brought things up. But you didn't know any better. Yeah. Because nobody knows any better. Because nobody, like this isn't something you learn about as you're becoming an adult, you know? Right. This wasn't in the Burkina classes that we had to take. No. There is no... How do you deal with an alcohol? There is short of Nancy Reagan telling us both to... Just say no to drugs. Nobody nobody prepared people of our generation for stuff like this. And the advice you were getting from your mom and sister were based on their experience. And your mom had had to get out of her marriage with your father. And that was the right decision in her situation. And she thought, gosh, this must be the right decision for Sherry too. What about... Um, there were a couple times when you got my parents involved. Yeah. What was there a particular breaking point, or um, was it just like you said you felt lonely, and was it a, a desperation thing? Was it something you had planned for a while, or did you just kind of snap? Because I think okay, so you, what... you've alluded to this, but I think it's fair for us to acknowledge <coughs> that. Um, You've got a you've got a temper. And, yeah. Um, well, one that, that's something that you know that's that's a piece of this puzzle. I'm not in any way blaming you. My disease was not your fault. My behavior was not your fault. I don't want to make it sound that way, but um, it certainly was a factor we had to deal with. Yeah, but I mean, I don't want to throw my mom under the bus. But one of our conversations was. Uh, with my mom about your drinking was does his parents have any idea how much he drinks I mean I hear those words in my mind and I'm like I remember one time and I don't remember if it was before or after I had already contacted and reached out to your parents but you were pretty drunk after dinner one night at the lake and it was in their their house now so it could have been after I've already contacted them at one point and your mom said does he drink like this every night and I said something to the fact like, well, on weekends, and she just kind of rolled her eyes. And uh, 
like I said, I can't remember the timing of that. It's just one specific incident that I remember. But I remember, like, finally saying, my gosh, the way he, like, looks up to his dad and he talks about his dad having these couple cocktails all the time. Like, how would he feel if his parents knew what he does? And, like, the stuff he says and how much he drinks and how much it's disgusting and how much he's hurting us. So I don't think it was out of anger. It was out of desperation. Like, if anybody can maybe get through to him, maybe it's his parents. I mean, I would have felt so embarrassed and so ashamed of who I was. Like, so maybe this will, like, shake him up to say, now my parents are involved. I'm a grown man with children of my own and living my own life. But here my parents are having to be involved and... I mean, because I wasn't getting through to you. You weren't making any changes. You didn't want to change. Because you didn't see it as being bad. So it was just sheer desperation that I reached out and contacted them. And it was pretty horrific. And it is not because I wanted to expose everybody to my pain and shock everybody. It's not like it was that I needed that attention. It's just... In that moment, in that late night call, like, I am alone here. I have children. I don't know what to do anymore with him. I don't know how to change the situation. I don't know how to even live in this situation anymore. And they were married, still are married, and I didn't have that, you know, parents that stayed together piece in my life. So I looked to them like, they seem like they've got it all together. You know, maybe they can figure this out because I'm kind of at my wit's end. So was the first time that you called them, was that the time that they came out the next day? Or was that the second time? I think maybe that was the second time. So the first time I got on the phone, right? Late at night, like I, two I in the morning so. or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. So I had drank a lot. You and I had argued a lot. I had probably passed out for a while. Yeah, and I think then... it was a night before. Yeah, I know. I think that's kind of the same because I think it was the time before Easter. And they had Easter plans and they came out like a couple days. Or they threatened to come out a couple days so, later. So... You got the, on the time phone. that they the time that they didn't come out, I got on the phone and went into you know, like we said, this is a disease of lies. I went into protect myself mode, and I don't think I was terribly coherent that night. But I know the next day, I told them nothing's wrong. I told them Sherry's nuts. Um, she's overblowing it. Everything's fine. Um, but I even, I even went further and I told, I know I told my dad, if you come out here, I won't be here. Basically what I said is, I don't remember the exact wording, but if you come out here, (coughs) I'll be gone and you, you will have destroyed your relationship with your only son. And I put them in a impossible situation, right? Basically, you know, do we believe our daughter-in-law who called in the middle of the night and there's obviously something awful going on. And, or do we believe the child that we raised? Um, and either way, either decision is a horrendous decision. And just like you and I weren't prepared for life with alcoholism, they weren't either. They weren't either. They, they hadn't had any schooling on how this works or um, nobody prepared them for how to deal with an alcoholic adult son so they were they were hosed and they they stood down they um, I was convincing enough that they and they were scared I think I think it's fair to say they were scared enough of losing me that they 
stood down. Now they, I remember some really awful and hard phone conversations. So I don't think that they thought everything was rosy by any means, but, um, but they didn't come out. But then there was the, the other time that you called and I, I don't think I knew about the second call. They just showed up. I think it was the next day. I don't think it was a couple days later. Yeah, it was a, it was a Saturday night. So we live in Colorado, and they live in. Um, they were in South Carolina. South Carolina. Because let's see, you had that soccer thing. So maybe it was Monday that they yeah. showed up. Yeah. After I think a Saturday it, night, but yeah. But they and they tried to play it off because I think because of fear for what I had said the first time, they tried to play it off like, oh, we just thought this would be great to surprise you guys. The kids don't get to see their grandparents very often, and here we are. And, um, but. You know, I knew that we had had a, another horrible fight, and I knew why they were probably there. And uh, they tried to, on that one, they tried to arrange a, an intervention because, again, they were just as at a loss as you were as far as what to do. And they knew that interventions were a thing, and they thought they would try that, and they contacted our minister. <coughs> Pardon me. And he refused to do an intervention because he said if if the drinker isn't ready to quit, it's useless. It's a waste of everybody's time. It's just going to cause hurt feelings. And so he, he said he thought the intervention was a bad idea and he wouldn't be any part of it. And then I remember from that trip, the thing I most remember is that I knew that they had contacted him. And I was livid because that's another, um, you know, little bit of light shed on the problems and um, our secret was getting out and this was or that that minister was someone that I had a really good relationship with and all I could think about I didn't think about you I didn't think about my health I didn't think about the kids I didn't think about my parents all I could think about is he's going to think badly of me now it never occurred to me that he would think oh Matt has a disease like you know 15 million Americans have or Matt's having an adult struggle, like all adults. Everybody goes through something, and Matt's going through something, and, and I'm his pastor, and I should help him with that. That never occurred to me. All I thought is, he's going to think badly of me now. And that, I think, speaks to the amount of shame that's involved with alcoholism, both being ashamed of not being able to control your drinking and, and just being ashamed of... Um, you know, at the time I didn't, I didn't think of it as a common ailment, you know, a, an addiction to a highly addictive substance. I thought of it as you're a depraved lowlife if you're an alcoholic. And because of Sherry's actions and my parents' actions, um, I've been exposed to someone outside the inner circle. But also I think it was a defense mechanism because already at that point you had already started the process of I have a real problem with drinking. I need to stop. I need to... And you were already in your pattern changes. Like, if I do this, then, I, you know, like, if I limit this and I have this, you were already starting at that beginning point. Yeah. Because <clears throat> one of the first times that your parents were involved were before we had Andrew, and a second time was after we had Andrew. And so you had already started some of those... Yeah, the Limitation, rules. Limitation, the rules. The rules, rules said, yeah. You know, that all... That you came up with a new rule every two weeks. I was thinking in the shower, Sherry, and I've got a new rule. I've got a new, you know, or like that'd be that Monday morning depression, and then by Tuesday morning you like would have a whole new set of rules. Rules like I'm not going to drink Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, or For I'm not going to drink For a while it was Sunday, alcohol. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because Sunday you had to go to work, and Thursday you only drank because you had soccer. Because Monday I had to go to work after soccer. Yeah. 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 So for a while it wasn't even, you weren't even drinking. Or you weren't drinking past six o'clock on Sundays. That's when, then you, when you added Sundays back in. And... Oh yeah. That was a smart one because then I would just drink as much as humanly as possible. As soon as we got home from church, you'd crack a beer and then be passed good. out or just obnoxious wandering around the house on Sunday nights where I'm almost like, hey, why don't you take this bottle of vodka and go sit downstairs and drink until you pass out? Because that would be better for everybody. Yeah. So, 
that's uh, as despicable as the rules and the breaking of the rules are. That's also almost a universal <coughs> step in the uh, the process of of the progressive disease of alcoholism. Everyone, everyone I know anyway, has tried to gain control of the uncontrollable by inventing these rules that eventually they break. Um, but I'm sure that that was frustrating to witness because you'd hear me say, oh, I got this new rule and I'd be excited about it, wouldn't I? Like, this is going to solve everything. And what was really hard is for a while it, it would. You know, I'd come up with something new and for a couple of weeks I'd be okay. I'd keep it, keep it in control. <coughs> and I think... Uh, but you, you didn't... You didn't have a lot of optimism with the rules, did you? Didn't you just think, oh, God, this is just another disaster well, waiting to happen? Well, you know, like, as far as me being a pessimist, yeah, I I knew that that was, that was just one more way for you to try to control an uncontrollable situation. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't solve all of our problems because it might solve it for a few weeks, but there were so many other relationship problems and things that had hurt the relationship over time that needed to get resolved or it didn't fix that there were everyday problems or there were normal marital problems that you with alcohol or the lack of trying to control the alcohol just couldn't deal with. And me at this point with my temper and anger and frustration and disappointment and baggage I carried around, I couldn't come up to any good resolutions. And it's not because I looked at you like you were a failure. I just thought, here's another set of rules for you to break and then be depressed about and then drink heavily on after you realize you've broken them. So the rules, that was a, you know, slow disaster. But when I say slow, I just mean it played out over years and years and years. Different different rules and I would um, I'd blow it and then I'd recommit to it and try again and then eventually I'd give up on that set of rules and try something different. But there was also the many failed attempts at sobriety where I would just say I'm done. And I honestly don't know how many times that happened, but it, it was more it was more than six. I've written about six occasions, but it was probably some I don't know, maybe it was ten. Oh, ten. But how did just talk for a second about I mean, when I would quit, I would get all this kind of gung-ho energy behind, phew, finally it's over. I'm not going to drink anymore. I've made this great decision. Um, our life's going to be perfect now because the alcohol's out of it. Um, how, did, how did you feel when I would say, usually on a Monday, right? It, it would usually follow right. a big weekend, and I'd say... Usually it was on a Tuesday, because sometimes I know that you have written that you didn't miss work, but there were some times on Mondays where you did not... When you were not physically a bread maker on the table, you would definitely delay going in, or go in for a bit, or not go in. So usually I think Tuesday, when you were kind of over your depression, and out of the pit, that's when you kind of said your new rules because Monday was still a pit struggle day in a lot of ways. So it was probably something that I had figured out in my head on Monday and then I told you about it on Tuesday. Yeah, whether Monday was the day you were just drinking your way through the day you would come up with something or you would just be in a slug-like depression and um, come up with something because you'd just be really quiet. But When I would tell you I was going to quit and this is it, this is it, Sherry, I'm done. Did you feel a sense of relief from that? Uh, the first couple of times I kind of felt inspired a little bit, but I also kind of thought, well, you've written how like people think this whole rock bottom thing has to happen before you actually make the, the change to quit. And I felt like I'm optimistic, but I don't think he's hit rock bottom yet where he is going to like stick to it for the long term. Um, and then after a while, I was like, yeah, whatever. And then I remember at one point you were like, I'm going to quit. And I'm like, why? Why even do this? Like, why change? Because we had gone through times where it wasn't a good relationship when you had quit. And it was, you know, kind of a long time. <clears throat> and then you went back to drinking. And then you said you were going to quit again. And I was like, it doesn't fix any of the problems. You don't see other problems we have. It doesn't fix. And I kind of felt like you were the devil I knew. And I was learning how to adapt and live with that. And at this point, it wasn't so much 
about the arguments and it was like at this point it was already when you were having the mental depression and it was really getting to you in a mental state not because I kind of had learned to adapt and this was when you were just drinking on the weekends and it was just beer and it wasn't outrageous but it just was hurting you mentally but I thought oh why like I have learned to deal and live in in this environment and now you're going to take it and shake it up well I think you said something really important because I would look at when I would quit like this is going to fix everything like instantaneously right and you were smart enough to see that there were all kinds of other problems that um maybe drinking had uh, had led to or even maybe just drinking had directly caused but stopping drinking wasn't going to make them go away um, so I think it's really interesting that you you say that you had kind of said this is my lot in life and I'm figuring out how to deal with it and this is how it's going to be forever because um, I think there's a lot of people that do that there's a lot of people that are in that high functioning alcoholism category which I, all I mean by that is they're able to hide it from the rest of the world and they do that their whole life and their relationship's a disaster but they you know just hold it together and take both parties take that to their grave and just what a miserable existence that must be but you were you were signed on for that huh you were you were willing willing to to deal with it as long as you had to yeah and the quitting was the quitting that I thought was the solution you just saw as um, something different that wasn't going to fix anything. Yeah, I just because like there had been many conversations where I would say the there are problems that are bigger than just the drinking, and they're not always just related to drinking, but there are things that we were never mature enough to figure out early on, or unresolved issues, or things that then the drinking just triggered and and you know hindered our progress in settling that or or exasperated and exaggerated the problem so I just knew that it wasn't just you drinking as a problem there was a whole big bucket full of problems so one of them specifically is you know I was an ass because when I would try to defend myself and hide and lie and downplay my drinking my go-to was to demean you and say, oh, Sherry, you don't know what you're talking about. You you don't understand. And try to make you feel like your genuine thoughts were wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a serious problem when you're, when you're trying to make... You know, I didn't sit around and think, oh, I'm going to go make Sherry feel stupid today. Like, that isn't how it worked. But... If I felt in any way backed in the corner or if I felt, you know, a lot of shame or guilt from the drinking that I had done on the previous weekend, um, I knew that the best way to uh, to clear that off my plate push it onto yours was make you feel like you were the one that was looking at it wrong. That's a serious relationship problem that had no hope of ever being solved, certainly no hope while I was drinking and then even after I stopped. There's a lot of scar tissue from that. So that one's obvious. But talk about some of the other things that my drinking did as far as how you felt about me. Does that, is that a, <coughs> like, do you understand what I'm yeah. talking about? Um, it, it really made me not really like you. Like, I would sometimes say to myself, like, I would never choose him as a friend. And I know you're not my friend. You're my husband and my partner. But I'm like, I don't even really like being around him. And I, and I wouldn't like some of your, you know, like, political views or judgmental views on other people. And, and like... Like when you were younger, there was definitely arrogance and self insuredness and and I could kind of filter through that, but I definitely felt like this is not somebody that I would want to hang around with. 
And you weren't hanging around with me. You were married to me. <laughs> yeah. It's even worse. So that kind of made it unattractive. Or like when you would be stumbling around and drunk or, and, you know, at home. And I'd be like, he's just disgusting. And then I'd see you at parties and you'd be drinking and you'd be flirty and having fun. And everybody just thought you were the life of the party. And I just thought, oh my God. What? What a fake person. Because you would try to make everybody engaged. And you are very charming and a lot of fun to be around. And I think that's why a lot of people are actually kind of surprised that you um, just didn't go home after the party and go right to sleep. Like you needed to stay up and drink more. And then she became this disgusting thing that I was like, oh my goodness. Well, I couldn't show those people the truth. I had to... Hide that. Right. But you would be so funny and witty and charming and, you know, but then, you know, there were a couple times where, like, we would get to the car and there would be an argument. Like, nobody was around. There would be an argument. Who's going to drive? Like, the the person stumbling out to the car or the person that's, you know, walking out to the car just fine? And, you know, there would be that sort of argument of who's going to drive because, you know, I had one glass of wine, but you had, you know several beers and it's just amazing that there were times that you know you were never pulled over when gotten a DUI but I was like oh my goodness here is this charming and energetic and friendly outgoing person in there and then he gets to the car and acts like he's totally fine and he's in control and there'd be an argument over that getting into the car who's gonna drive like you just so your arrogance and know-it-all just was kind of a turn off and it was also like machismo or chauvinistic or something I don't know how to describe it but like I'm the man I'm fine so it kind of just grossed me out a little bit but I understand you were trying to now I look back and understand you're trying to prove that you were in control of the alcohol because you were you know you didn't want to be a victim of the alcoholism well it's funny it's not funny it's it's interesting that um you know a marriage a healthy marriage develops into a lot more than physical attraction like that's the very beginning you meet at a party and you find each other attractive and that's how it starts right Mm -hmm. Um, but you know it grows into a lot more like obviously love and trust and then you're depending on each other and things like that and healthy communication stuff like that um but it's funny, not funny, I stopped saying that. It's awful that one of the things that I destroyed with alcohol was the attraction. So the thing that first happened, the thing that made you say, oh, I like this guy. He seems to have a decent sense of humor and he's fun to be around and, and I have a physical attraction to him. I completely destroyed. <coughs> I completely destroyed that through alcoholism. Is that fair to say? Yeah, like I think so. you got to the point where you were just disgusted to see me sober or not sober. It was because yeah. that's that's important for for us for us and for everyone to understand that um, you know when you're disgusting enough, the disgusting carries over to the non-disgusting times too. Yeah, well, and I think that also is my personal issue is, like you said, I have a very good memory along the way. So that makes those images hard to forget. And not necessarily to forget and forgive, but just to forget and wash away and put in the past. Even if it had been, you know, like a month prior. And, like, I could have, like, a flashback as I'm doing dishes and you walk through and... You know, like sometimes even now when you are drinking your bubbly waters and you and you were mostly a bottled beer drinker, but occasionally you would have canned beers. So sometimes even occasionally, like I'll hear that like pop open and I just cringe. Huh. You know what's funny? When I'm in public and I open up a, a can of bubbly water, I like I hold it really high <laughs> and out for people to look at because I feel... Even people that I I didn't even know when I was a drinker that I've only met in the last couple of years, I want them to see that I'm drinking bubbly water. That that you heard wasn't a beer. Yeah. 
Um, so that sound is, I think that sound's going to haunt both of us forever. I don't think there's any way getting around that. Yeah. The other word that comes to mind when we talk about things that were destroyed by my drinking in our marriage, you know, attraction, um, the ways I would make you feel bad about yourself as a defense mechanism and just be evil and vile, those things. But the other one is trust. Um, I, I think that because I so many times told you I'm going to do A, B, and C, or um, don't worry, I've got this under control, or things of that nature, I think um, it destroyed what is a, kind of a cornerstone of a marriage, which is to be able to trust each other. There was never any infidelity or even anything close to infidelity in our relationship. Um, and there was never, you know, I never went out and spent $40,000 that you didn't know about. There was never any financial issues, but just because I wasn't able to be there for you when I said I'd be there for you, is I mean, is it fair to say that I had completely destroyed the trust that you felt in me? Yeah, definitely like that emotional support, romantic partnership trust, like you said. There was no infidelity. I never once had any thought, like when you were traveling before we bought the bakery, like that you'd be cheating on me no matter if you were trashed in a bar somewhere. I mean, I think I could plant you naked next to a naked woman and still feel very confident that you had not done anything. Because um, I don't, I don't, I didn't have that sort of trust. I didn't have any trust issues that you would not do whatever it takes to provide for your family. Financially, making sure that we were secure, like you would work your fingers to the bone, but I didn't have like trust that I could share things with you of how I felt and that you wouldn't, you know, like I just lost that supportive trust, like that sort of trust, like support and backing me up about some decisions about the kids or you know you you weren't going to let us down you weren't going to let us fail financially and those sort of things but I I didn't feel like you had any emotional um, I didn't have any emotional trust so so attraction physical attraction trust and then just supporting you in that your feelings were legitimate and the things you know are things you know and they're real. Those three things are kind of the biggies that alcohol took away from our marriage. And I don't know how a marriage is a marriage without... Those are those are like, you know, I think I used the word cornerstones earlier and I'm going to use it again. Like, I, that's foundational. Without that, there's no reason for two people to be together. So what, what I'd really like to do, Sherry, I know how much you love to talk and talk out in the open about things like this, but I'd really like to have, have another conversation and, and do this again and talk about um, early sobriety, early recovery, the, the time that I actually made it and the time that, you know, this time that, that I've stayed sober and that you and I went through and continue to go through recovery together because I don't think that's a a short conversation. I think that's another full discussion. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's a little sad to leave this conversation with uh, everything that was important in our relationship was gone. Um, so I guess, um, I guess we should just kind of sign off by at least saying, hey, We'll tell you how later, but things are a lot better. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. But one thing I think that's very fair to say, too, for people who may not listen to that podcast is, I knew that there was a good person in you. I had no doubt. And so when I was told, you should leave him because of his drinking, or I just knew... I knew who you were. I knew who you wanted to be. And I knew you would get there. I didn't know how. I just knew that 
I couldn't leave you. Not because of our vows or not because of uh, the children. I just, I knew you would come out on the other side. Well, that's, that's pretty amazing because I definitely went from being super arrogant to feeling worthless and the fact that you were able to maintain that confidence that I was a decent person there were definitely times when I didn't think I was a decent person at all and didn't think I had any hope of being a decent person so you deserve a ton of credit for that I love you love you too well, not a very uplifting ending, but uh, this is the reality of alcoholism and alcoholism in a relationship. It is ugly. So for my beautiful and loving and insightful wife, Sherry, this is Matt Salis. Thank you for listening to the Intoxicated Podcast, and we'll be back to tell you more later.